Well, welcome to The Walrus and the Carpenter. My name is Jason Allgood. I'm the teaching pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Peoria, Illinois. And with me, as always, is Gary Gear, pastor of Calvary Baptist Bible Church, also in Peoria. Gary, what has brightened your day today? Uh, Pad Thai for lunch that my wife made. She made it? Yes, and a cherry turnover that I stole from my daughter, and I would do it again if I had the chance. <laughs> And I feel perfectly innocent about that. I mean, I and will would, Delaney only find out about this when she hears the podcast? She doesn't listen to the podcast, okay, so. Jason. So again, <laughs> no shame upon no shame. All right. Well, uh, we are so excited to have our guest on today. We have the very uh, great privilege of having Dr. Jason Allen uh, from Midwestern Seminary on our show today. He serves as the fifth president of Midwestern Seminary. And uh, since uh, being at the institution, it's been about eight years ago, he has led the institution to become one of the largest and fastest growing seminaries in North America. In addition to his role as president, he serves the institution in the classroom as professor for preaching and pastoral ministry. Uh, beyond this, he serves churches and uh, he writes. Uh, two of my favorite books uh, from him are Letters to My Students, Volume 1 on Preaching and Being a Christian, How Jesus Redeems All of Life. This last one is the book that my wife and I have started recommending uh, to new converts. Uh, Dr. Allen regularly posts on his website, jasonkallen.com, and he also hosts a weekly podcast that I've benefited from called Preaching and Preachers. Dr. Allen holds an MDiv and a PhD from Southern Seminary, and uh, there's a lot of info that I just stated uh, about you, Dr. Allen, but can you tell us the most important part about your life? Tell us about your wife and children. Yeah, I was hopeful you would go there, Jason. And by the way, before I answer that, let me thank the two of you for having me on your podcast. It's good to uh, visit with you, Jason. Of course, I've known you over the years as you've been a student here, but uh, delighted to be with you guys today. My wife, Karen, and I have been married now for 21 years. She's the love of my life. Uh, just we're, we're, we're romantics in that sense, just truly love one another. Um, the first time we met, I left thinking I'm going to marry her. She called her mom <laughs> and said, I think I just met the guy I'm going to marry. Awesome. And kind of the rest is history. Uh, God has given us five children. They are now ages 17 to 12, two girls, two boys, and a girl. And so we're just one big, rambling, happy family. And there's a lot of laughter in our home, a lot of joy. Um, these are good days for us in Kansas City. Well, that's really great, and I've had the joy of meeting your family, and they are delightful. And I should probably give that caveat. I am a student at Midwestern Seminary. I'm also adjunct faculty member, so uh, just that little bit of a disclaimer there. But uh, it is a joy to have you on, uh, Dr. Allen. Uh, one of the main things we wanted to talk about with you today is, of course, uh, our world has just gone crazy with uh, what has gone on with the COVID pandemic. And um, uh, just really wanted to jump into the deep end of the pool with you about that and ask uh, how COVID has affected MBTS over the last uh, five or six months. Yeah, thank you for asking. And I will tell you, it's been uh, impactful to me both personally and institutionally. And I'll get to the personal point here in a moment. But institutionally, like it's been quite the monkey wrench thrown into our plans. And I was telling our leadership team back a couple months ago when we were reflecting on this, just about how things show up in our lives every year that you don't expect. Hmm. Nothing has been as pronounced as COVID-19 as far as the degree of interruption. The illustration I'll borrow was one from the political realm when uh, in, the, in the 2000 election, Bush v. Gore, in the lead up to that, President George W. Bush campaigned on on a, 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 a platform of, of national humility. Um, of, of, of national domestic focus 
No more foreign adventurism, no more nation building, no more Bosnia, no more Somalia. Let's focus our time and our energy on the homeland. Let's give our energies to domestic priorities. And then, you know, six months into his presidency, uh, 9-11 happens, and he spends the next right. seven and a half years focused on overseas realities. In some ways, a little something like that's happened every year I've been here. You set out with a particular agenda in mind, and by God's grace, you're able to tackle that in the main. There's always been an issue or two or three that pops up that takes a lot of time in an unforeseen way. Uh, often that's personnel, where you you, you wind up losing someone, uh, that God calls them elsewhere, and you got to spend a lot of time replacing them or something of that nature. But COVID-19 came out of nowhere in February and then hitting home uh, abruptly in March, and it's been a, a massive disruption because it, it's touched us at every level. What we can do on this campus, in March we had to convert ourselves to online studies very quickly. We were equipped to do that technologically, but nonetheless it was a quick transition. And then uh, you get into what's happening in the national economy, the, the swift recession that comes in, churches not being able to meet, how that's impacting our students, uh, churches not meeting in the national recession, how that's uh, impacting those who would support us, either through their tuition uh, payments or through churches who, who support us through the cooperative program and the Southern Baptist Convention. So all of that very quickly landed. And then you get into you know the medical concerns and like we don't want students or faculty or staff to contract COVID. So We've had to hustle. We've had to adjust. We've had to be adaptable. Uh, the three watch phrases for us this fall have been, I've said this many times, we're going to trust the Lord, we're going to respect the virus, and we're going to be patient with one another. And all three of those have been have been necessary. At the personal level, um, my daughter Caroline, um, who is now 16, she was diagnosed with COVID this summer. Praise God, she was asymptomatic, so not anything that was really obvious that she had COVID. She never had a fever, any of the, the clear signs. Both my parents currently have COVID. Um, they, I guess technically they're COVID-free as of yesterday, September 1. That's good But news. They, they both still have the ramifications of it and uh, some real health concerns on the backside of it. They are not out of the woods. Uh, we're not sure what this looks like in the weeks and months ahead, but it, it's hit them particularly hard. They both were in relatively good health going into it. And so, you know, whatever you think of COVID, as far as are we overreacting or underreacting, there are legitimate debates to have as far as how we should uh, nationally process this and what we should do in our different institutions. I mean, that not merely higher ed, but different institutions and entities as a country. Um, there are legitimate conversations to be had. But look, there is no denying from those, from one whose parents have it and for one who knows other people who's had it, I mean, you don't want this. No mm -hmm. one's volunteering for this. Mm -hmm. If you're young and healthy, it'll probably be minimal, but if you're older or not so healthy, uh, this is kind of a devastating impact. We have had, uh, well, we had one person pass in our church and we discovered her body, in fact, after the fact. So, yeah, it's a real thing, which, which brings up a question. Um, how has this changed the way we've looked at theological education? I know like in the last like 15, 20, 30 years, there's been a big push for this to be in person. And now we're seeing that with COVID, it's forcing us to do virtual. How has that changed the way you guys look at all of this? And what adjustments have you made in order to address the shortcomings of online education? Right. So let me... Um... Let me try to speak to that at a couple different levels, and I'll okay. be a bit I'll be a bit autobiographical. I okay. am now in my in my early forties. Um, my wife and I moved off to seminary in the fall of two thousand one. So so like not that long ago, um, when we were planning to go to seminary, um, online education 
was, or, or maybe we should refer to it as distance education at that time. Mm-hmm. It was a thing, but it was a very small thing. It, it often was, you know, you received DVDs in the mail, <laughs> uh, you, and you engaged the classwork that way. You could do a fraction of your degree in a distance setting. If you had an extension center in your region, which Southern Baptist used to have a pretty expansive extension center mm-hmm. network, you, know, you could access it that way. But, but really, you, most people were going to campus. They really wanted you know, capital S seminary training, and so that's what we did. Right. Throughout the 2000s, online education increasingly came into its own as, um, as more and more institutions were, were not only comfortable offering it philosophically, convictionally, but also were more and more equipped technologically to offer it and really to do, to do it well. Once you get into the 2010s, it really exploded to where, to where I mean, a lot of, you have a lot of online students, you have a lot of institutions offering online classes. And that's growing with each passing year as a percentage of your course offering and, and more to the point, a percentage of your hours taken. Um, by the time you get to the to late teens, you have you have basically full accreditation support where the online MDiv or the MDiv degree can be completed entirely online, not a portion of it. Other master's degrees can be completed online. You have you have forays into even a doctoral degrees being completed online. So all that's expanded. So what you've seen the past basically two decades since I moved off to seminary, you've seen a, a creep towards online, then a significant movement towards online, and then a and then a really you know a, a full stride engagement with online. The question now is through COVID, like what is it like on the back side of it? Hmm. And look, it's not just online education. It's what is the new normal economically? What is the new normal yeah. local church as far as people gathering? So there's a lot of mystery there. I, I don't think like we're going to wake up in 18 months and residential education has gone away. I don't think that at all. But I do think what will probably happen is that that migration to online um, will, will intensify. Now, in, in, in looking at that, it's interesting you bring that up. Is is there a movement then as things move online to reach out to these local churches and make them part of the process, saying, okay, here a guy from your church is doing our online programs. How is a church, are, are you working with them at the same time? Is there any, are, are you guys thinking in those terms, or is that already part of your infrastructure? Yeah, no, we, very much so. And so we started this my first year here, we launched the Midwestern Training Network. That, that, that's 2013 slash 2014 in that window. And we launched the Midwestern Training Network as a collection of a couple of hundred churches. And I won't get in the weeds of, in the weeds of it, but the bottom line is all those churches had to have at least an online student and at least a willing pastor or staff member to partner uh, with that online student. So to customize that online education okay. and, to the, and, and to personalize in the context of the local church. So you have that. Cool. Additionally, beyond the formality of that training network, we have classes. I mean, many of our classes uh, are built, in fact, perhaps, uh, in fact, most of our online classes are built um, so that it can be facilitated by a local church pastor or there can be a practicum component to it where student online students can actually, or we actually encourage them and even uh, uh, by way of curriculum motivate them to, to actually bring that online education out of kind of the, the darkness, so to speak, or the anonymity, so to speak, and actually have that taking place in the context of a, of a local church. Yeah, we are actually a part of the Midwest Training Network here at uh, Fellowship Bible, and uh, our other staff pastor besides myself just last week graduated with his MTS, and the last four classes that he did were those practicums in the pastoral and preaching track, and uh, I field mentored him through all of those, and uh, it's a great, great way to get the local church integrated. 
Thanks for that, Jason. Yeah. Um, so uh, because I keep my finger on the pulse of what's <laughs> happening at Midwestern, you know, classes have started back up in person um, as well as online. In fact, you guys ramped up online uh, because of COVID, and, and that's the reason why I'm doing some adjunct work with Midwestern. Um, what measures, though, have you taken uh, to uh, in-person uh, class now that everybody's kind of gathered back? And, you know, I watched, I saw last night that the, the volleyball uh, team had their inaugural game. Uh, so what measures have been taken uh, for on-campus students at this point? Yes, thank you. So I will be descriptive, and as I'm descriptive, I'm sure I will sound prescriptive as well at, at points, and sure. uh, and maybe maybe I will be prescriptive at points. But I, I'm saying that to say a lot of this is contextual. It's absolutely it's what's going on in your city. What's That's going right. On in your state. What are municipal expectations? What are what are state expectations and so forth? So for us, um, our desire was to have fall of 2020 resemble fall of 2019 as much as we responsibly can. Okay. Right. So a part of that is the experience on the ground, but also part of that is knowing this could change rapidly. Like you, we, we could have an outbreak in Kansas City such that the, that the uh, municipal authorities shut us down, not just us personally, but, but sure. let's say higher education or, or all institutions, educational institutions quickly. So, so how do we navigate all that? So what we did is in the spring, we, the, my analogy is we basically had to flip a switch. Like, okay, we got to go to online now. And we had the infrastructure to do that. So that, that, that was I don't want to say it was easy, but it, it was doable. Mm -hmm. The analogy for this fall and perhaps for this academic year that I've chosen is really the turning of a dial. So if we come in and we start with a dial set on a on a having residential classes, but that is, you know, a COVID nineteen game plan. How do we adjust this dial if two months into the semester or two weeks into the semester we have a COVID outbreak on this campus and we have to go and we have to have less personal interaction and go more distant and then vice versa? What if three months in? These numbers have, have went down and, you know, we would have mass distribution of a vaccine that we felt more comfortable engaging more like fall of 2019, that, that we could adjust to have a more a more normal residential experience. So that's that's kind of the theory behind it. So for us on the ground is uh, it means we are wearing masks all the time when we cannot ensure at least six feet distance from other people. So, mm -hmm. so if I, I'm in my office right now recording a podcast with you, there's no one else in here. I'm fine without a mask on. I'm in my office sometimes with people visiting in meetings, but, and we are across the table or, you know, we have distance. So we're visiting without a mask on, but if I'm in settings or we're in settings where we're within six feet or we, we may be, mm -hmm. there's an unpredictability You're in the hallway. There's unpredictability that we have masks on. Also, in the classroom, we were having six feet distancing and wearing masks just mm -hmm. as an extra layer of insurance. In chapel, we are six feet distancing with masks on. And so, our, you know, you've been here before, Jason. Our chapel seats close to 1,200 people in mm -hmm. total if you really pack it in there. You know, we're only having about 180 to 200 people in there because if you actually take the social distancing seriously – it just it's not just you know it, 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 it it's not like you get half of your usage you get like a fourth or a fifth of your usage maybe right and so that's at least our chapel configuration so we went to an xy schedule this semester where half the community is invited and anticipated to be there on tuesday the other half on wednesday and we're rotating that's worked out relatively well um a lot of seminaries are not having chapel i will tell you we wrestle with this mm. in fact three weeks ago i was saying i really hope we're not about to make a dumb decision not because i was worried about like that that chapel gathering incubating a COVID outbreak but because is this going to be so lame so cold so dead that it's going to be counterproductive <laughs> i'm telling you we are so glad we're having chapel we're on our we just played our second week 
even with us having you know, half our people there and them being spread out and wearing face masks, it's been so encouraging. The singing has been so enriching. It's just that resemblance of community has been sweet. And I think it speaks to the pent-up demand. Mm. So the way we've told our people, and I've spoken of this often, if our point of reference is fall of 2019, and we think of these adjustments and these limitations in light of fall of 2019, like we're probably going to be discouraged. Right. But if our point of reference is actually April of 2020, when no one's here and everyone's, you know, hold up at <laughs> home, taking online classes, then we're going to find this life-giving. And so with that contrast, I'm really thankful we're having chapel. I'm really thankful that we're doing some things we're doing as we're seeking to do them. We've done some outdoor gatherings on the lawn. We had the volleyball game you mentioned last night. And generally speaking, folks are abiding by it. You know, it's, you have some people cluster together without a face mask or, you know, or together. Well, if you're a family unit, you're already exposed, so that's right. fine. And look, you know, we're humans, and we have students that are, you know, 18 to 28 <laughs> and older even, but most are, let's say, in their 20s. And, you know, they, they have agency, and they make decisions. And so right. if, someone's in, if, if someone's in obvious violation, we will lovingly nudge them. But I think it's working pretty well, three weeks on the ground. Good, good. Um, what? Speaking of all of those things that you've just mentioned there, what impact has there been on enrollment? Have you guys seen a decrease, sort of a steady stream, or have things actually gone up? You know, we, we are so encouraged on that front. And I'm not trying to make news here, but since you asked the question, I'll tell you, uh, the national higher ed projections this fall, and again, there, I, I want, I'm hesitant to use the, the word higher ed consensus because there's been a there, there hasn't been a whole lot of consensus nationally as to how COVID should impact and is impacting. Sure. So there it, it has been a mixed bag. But generally speaking, there's a higher ed consensus of uh, of, um, of 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 fall enrollment being down about fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. So you know our story. God has been good to us. We've grown a lot the past six seven years. And so the general trajectory of higher education in America the past decade or so and projected forward the next decade or so is a general sense of enrollment decline year over year, given national de- demographic issues and uh, some other ancillary points as well. So so we were conservative and we, we planned and budgeted to be down 15 percent. But we also said, look, we're not going to be victims here. We're going to work hard to, right. um, to maintain our trends of, of where we've been up double digits the past five, six years. And so praise God, right. uh, as you and I record this September 2nd, we actually are up um, in, in the double digits, in the, in the low to mid-teens. And, and we're profoundly thankful. Now, that, that has been up more with online. Um, our on-campus piece um, has been more of a challenge, but, but, but it's, not, it's not like catastrophic. But you all sure. together, we're really encouraged by, uh, by that. And what's happened with on-campus a lot, by the way, Jason, is we still have we have a lot of on-campus students, or, or not literally people who live on campus, but let's say live within an hour of campus. And so they're the residential students. They come to campus once, twice, three times a week, and and let's say maybe pre-COVID they took they took they they took all their classes residential, or they took three residential classes, one online class per semester. We're seeing a little bit of, of more residential students who may be taking two residential classes and two online or three residential classes, one online. So mm-hmm. a little bit of a migration there, which we hope will be short lived because again, we enjoy the, the in-person interaction. Sure. Uh, but, but we're seeing that overall, we're very encouraged though. That's wonderful. Very cool. One more question. And then we're going to dial out here in a few minutes, two part question. Um, as a former pastor, head of the seminary, you're kind of, you kind of see and hear things where you are, when when you look at conservative evangelicalism in the United States, what with with COVID here, 
Um, what have you been encouraged by as far as what COVID has revealed about the state of the American church? And what do you think needs improvement as far as the conservative American church is revealed by COVID, if that makes sense? Yeah, I'll try to answer that. First of all, I, I am by nature not a pessimist. Okay. Part of that is, you know, Winston Churchill in May, you know, <laughs> Churchill famously said, I, I determined long ago to be an optimist. You know, it, it's nothing else seems to help. I'm paraphrasing here, but basically being a pessimist doesn't help. Uh, even if you even if the facts are pessimistic, it doesn't help to to kind of consent to that. But to, to, to seek to be optimistic. Don't tell my but wife also, that. Whatever you do, don't tell my <laughs> wife. OK, yeah, but go yeah. ahead. But also, uh, look, biblically, theologically, I'm optimistic because Christ has promised to build his church. Mm -hmm. Now, we've all heard that take out of context and people cling to that promise for every bad, poorly led, yeah. you know, church in America. That's not a promise that a church will not go out of business, a respective congregation, but, but Christ generally, broadly, eternally, spiritually is building his church. So I, I'm encouraged. So what, what I, what I think COVID is doing is they're kind of sussing out or, or shaking out, you know, some of the, um, the less than committed Christianity. And by that, I mean, if people have gotten really comfortable kind of, you know, quote unquote, worshiping at home, and that's like really convenient and, and they've enjoyed doing that. And so what, what will this look like one year from now? Will our overall worship attendance in person be down and more people quote unquote, worshiping from home? I can see that possibly happening. Now, having said that, I will tell you, um, you know, we've had for months that our church is meeting in person and we're gloriously back in person and the Allen family is there, but we actually got more out of the quote unquote online worship than I thought we would get out of it. And yeah. I'm thankful for that. I really yeah. am. Like, like, so when I was, let's say over the years, if we've been on vacation and we're away from our church on a Sunday, we would either like go like worship at some church, you know, and if it was like someone I knew or, you know, it was a church we, we knew, and it, maybe that was a very obvious decision and we're going to go there. Maybe we're in a part of the country or place where, like, I don't know a local pastor, and and like we don't know the health of a church nearby, and so maybe we just kind of, kind of, kind of chance it, do a little online search, and we go worship somewhere, and maybe it's a good experience, maybe it's not so good, or maybe, maybe I like I'm leading our family in a Sunday morning family devotion kind of family worship scenario. Uh, I will tell you, like up until COVID, I would not think, oh, actually, we're going to like view our online service from our hmm. home church, and that's we're going to do that. For me, uh, I still would prioritize being there in person, but I, the, the, the option of us actually in a, in, a, in a subtle way viewing our home church and me kind of facilitating that with opening, closing prayer and talking to our kids, you know, that, that's a more legitimate option to me now than it was eight months ago. The final thing I'll say on a ministry standpoint I have to be careful of is, is the toll that, that COVID is taking on people that we can't quantify. So not just the the physical toll, but just the isolation toll, right. the emotional, spiritual toll of isolation, right. but also the the distancing that 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 how that is taking some of the the social lubrication out of relationships. Here's what I mean by this: hmm. Zoom is much better than an email dialogue. Zoom is much better than a phone call. We're all kind of zoomed out, but look, that, that's far more personable than just like living through email and phone calls month after month. But Zoom is not in person. And as I have detected pastorally and, and just observing life, some different relational frictions I've seen with people in different settings, I'm thinking this might go back to you guys that haven't been having lunch together once a month for six months, you know. Mm. And, and, and so some of those things, it's hard to quantify, but just knowing human nature and people. 
and uh, and watching all this, like thinking COVID is is creating some some friction in ways that we're not detecting yet, but a, a careful eye would really indicate. Hmm. That's really, uh, really helpful, really good. Thanks, Dr. Allen. One last question before we let you go here. What is your favorite Kansas City barbecue place? Uh, Kansas, Joe's Kansas City. Now, see, I thought you were a Q39 guy. I, I love- am. I, I, it's, those are my top two. Okay, uh, I, okay. I, I, yeah. So, and they're a little, you know, I, neither are elegant, not, neither is fine dining, but Q, right. you know, Q39 is, is a little finer. And, um, but uh, I, I think we, we probably go towards Q39 or use Q39 on campus more just given the, um, the, the fullness of their menu offerings. But, yeah. but probably if I'm just like in, you know, in casual clothes with my kids and we just want to kind of buy ourselves, have, you know, fill our belly with our favorite barbecue, we probably migrate towards Joe's more so than Q39. But we love them both. Those are our top two. And then there are literally scores oh, yeah. of different oh, really yeah. good places in Kansas City. And the best one, it's kind of like the best barbecue in Kansas City is probably like, who's the best preacher in America? Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I'm sure it's someone we've never heard of, you know? Right. And so it, it's probably like like some barbecue place or places that I don't even know about, but they're that good. Sure. Yeah, Joe's is my number one. Q39 is my number two. And I always call Q39 highbrow barbecue as compared to right. Joe's. But <laughs> Well, well and look, and I, I know we're wrapping this up here, yeah. but uh, I will tell you, I am a creature of habit. I mean, I, I am horribly a creature of habit. So I went, I got in like a five-year rut for the <laughs> seminary. I just always had us, like, when we had a little barbecue luncheon or something or a gathering, just Q39 is where we got. And you wake up kind of five years later and say, man, I've had Q39 <laughs> you know, five times a month for the past five years. Sure. I really am craving Joe's. So yeah. I kind of swung that way, the past, back that way the last couple of years. Well, that's great. Uh, well, Dr. Allen, thank you so much for being on today. We really, really appreciate it. Appreciate it. We, thank you for um, – Spending some time with us. Thank you, guys. It's been a joy. God bless, okay? All right. Thank Take you. Care, man. Well, thanks for listening to The Walsh and the Carpenter. Uh, we uh, Wow, let me start that over again. I'm going to have to redo it anyway. <laughs> well, thanks for listening in today to The Walsh and the Carpenter. We're so thankful that you stopped by. Uh, go check us out on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio or our website, wallcarpradio.wordpress.com. Uh, leave us a comment there or maybe even uh, some suggestions for some future shows. Uh, but uh, we also would appreciate if you went uh, to iTunes and gave us a rating there and let others know that you have enjoyed listening to the podcast. Uh, other than that, we'll see you next time.